0: Let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 8 to 12 today. And if you want to use the blue Bible in front of you, you can find it on page 1118. 1118 in the blue Bibles. There is so much good in this text, and I am... I have been blessed this week by looking through it, and I pray that the Lord does the same for you as we get to look at his word together. So look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. Well, some people like, some people think of the Bible simply as a big book of answers, right? And while the Bible does contain many answers in fact, all the answers we truly need, one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it is not just a book of answers, it's also a book of questions, good questions, penetrating questions, questions that can kind of cut through the fog of life and get right down to the heart of the matter. And our passage this morning has a question like that built into it. Now if you look down you may not see it right away because it's not phrased as a question. There's no question mark in our passage. But the passage is built around answering this question. The question is in verse 10. It says whoever desires to love life and see good days. So what's the question? The question is simple, it's do you want to love life? Do you want to see good days? So let me ask this morning as we get started, do you? Do you want to love life? Do you want to see not just days, but do you want to see good days? Let me put it another way. Do you want to live the good life? Now my guess is everybody here would say, yeah, of course I do. But I wonder what you picture when I say the good life. Probably lots of different things come into our minds. Perhaps it's a certain amount of wealth. Maybe it's having a bigger house or a nicer car or just not having financial concerns at all. Maybe it's the freedom, the freedom to live however you want to live without constraint. Maybe it's having a certain amount of influence and power. Maybe it's just simply a life of comfort. Without any of those hard things, those hard things that Phil just prayed about, I don't want any of those tears or valleys. Just get rid of the pain. Well, one thing we know for sure as we look here in our text is that Peter's version of the good life, it can't mean those things, right? Because he can't be referring to wealth since we know that some of the people he's writing to are slaves. And for the same reason, he can't be referring to a a freedom to live however you want because a slave belonged to their master. What about power and influence? Well, let's not forget these are exiles who are told to be subject to authorities. Okay, but what about a life of ease and comfort? Maybe that's where he's going. Well, except he's already said they've been grieved by various trials and from this point on a lot of the book's going to be about suffering. So what Peter's got in mind here when he talks about the good life is something radically different than what many people first consider and here's how I would summarize the good life we see in our passage it's living a beautiful life in a beautiful community with God's bountiful help Or well, let me say it another way the good life is living by God's ways with God's people in God's presence okay now, we've been talking since chapter 2, verse 12, about how Peter is calling us as exiles to live beautiful lives. That's a phrase we've latched onto to and I keep coming back to. And he says, I want you to live beautiful lives, exiles, so that others see your good deeds and they glorify God. Right? We've seen that. And we've seen that this beautiful life is shaped by persistently doing good in a posture of submission we've seen that the last three four weeks now this morning Peter's wrapping up this section of the book and he wants to make sure that okay I've been talking to you about beautiful lives now I don't want you to miss exiles these beautiful lives are meant to be lived with other Christians and so when you get a bunch of Christians living beautiful lives together you know what it creates a beautiful community and this beautiful community has a name it's called the local church. And what we see this morning is that the good life Peter points us to is live together in the beautiful community of the local church. So the question we're chasing down this morning is simple. It's how do we live the good life together? We all want to live the good life, so how do we do it together? What should the church look like to be the beautiful community that we see here in 1 Peter? So here. Here's how we're going to walk through the passage. It's a little bit clunky, but here's an outline for you. It's marks, motivations, marks, and motivations. And there's a lot of numbers. At first, I was trying to make some kind of number thing work out. There's nothing cute. This is just simply so you have some sense of idea where we are in the passage. So first, Peter gives us six marks of the beautiful community. What does it look like? Then he gives us three motivations for why we should live that way. And then he gives us three more marks. And then he gives us two more motivations. Okay, so we're kind of going to go back and forth. We live this way, here's why. Live this way, here's why. All right, so that's where we're going. It's so a lot of stuff to get through. But you'll notice in verse eight, he starts with finally. But then if you're looking down at your Bibles, you'll also realize uh, he's, he's still got two and a half chapters in this letter. So is, is Peter simply one of those preachers that we all know hopefully that don't stand here often that say finally and then 10 minutes later in conclusion and then 10 minutes later to sum it all up like is he is that what he's doing just kind of a it's a rhetorical gotcha kind of thing no not at all he, he's wrapping up this section not the letter that's so when he says finally he's saying okay what i've been talking about since 212 i'm going to kind of put a bow on it here for you then i want you to notice how he says All of you. Now, this is important because remember, throughout this section, he's been primarily addressing various groups within the church. He's talked about servants. He's talked about wives. He's talked about husbands. But now Peter's zooming back out and he's saying, okay, guys, this part, what I'm about to say, this is for all y'all. This is for everybody. He addresses it to them as a group, and it's about how they are to live together as a group, and the marks Peter lists here, we're going to see are all things that would lead to deep, rich, and beautiful relationships in the church. So let's jump in and see what does this beautiful community look like. First thing Peter says should mark a local church: you see, there is unity of mind. Literally, we should be one-minded. Is the literal translation here one-minded? Now, here's what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean we should be identical. To one another or exactly alike there is no carbon copy or there's no cookie cutter that we expect everybody to fit the mold in fact what he's talking about here is unity not uniformity the church we actually see i think you guys talked about this in core class maybe a week or two ago the church is actually designed by god to be made up of people who are quite different from one another Different ages, different races, different politics, different backgrounds, different educations, different hobbies, different personalities. And yet, Peter says, in spite of all the things that Marcus has different from each other, the local church is to be marked by a deep oneness of mind. So what is this unity rooted in? What can possibly anchor a oneness with all those differences, all the things that out in the world cause division and fighting? What is it that anchors our oneness? It's not something shallow, and it's not something temporary. It's not that list of things I just said. What's uniting us here is not because we're all the same age. If you look around, you'll say, oh, yeah, I guess that's true. It's not because we all have the same skin color, it's not because we all grew up in the same neighborhood. It's not because we all vote the same way. It's not because we all like the cults. It's not because we like the same music. It's not any of the things that the world says, that's who I'm going to rally around. Those are my people. Instead, what is it that defines our unity? It's something deeper and eternal. Namely, that we belong to Jesus Christ. And he is ours forevermore. That is what we have in common in the church We are one-minded in knowing that we are sinful and unable to save ourselves. If we're a member of this church, we we say, yes, that is true of me. We are one-minded in knowing that Jesus died to pay for our every failing. And we are one-minded in believing that through his resurrection, we have been born again to a living hope. Our unity is found in the good news that in Christ, we share a new identity. What's that identity? We are exiles. In Christ, we share a glorious calling. What's that calling? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called us. And we share a same goal. As Peter will say in chapter 4, what's the goal? That in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That's what unites us here. Not only that, but we share the same authority. Namely, the word of God. People in our world look all different places to decide what they think is true. They have all different standards that they measure things up against to say, is this right or is this wrong? Is this beautiful or is this ugly? But we are united in looking to one place to answer that question. Our standard is not what we think. It's not how we grew up. It's not what someone else told us. Instead, we submit every idea, every concept, and every practice to the authority of God's word. We hold everything up to its light, and together we are one-minded under the scriptures. And this kind of unity demonstrates the power of the gospel because apart from Jesus, we are all prone to division. We're all prone to thinking only of ourselves. But Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17 that we would be one, even as he and the Father are one. And then he didn't just pray it, he died to make it a reality he died to make us one and then he gave us his spirit so that now paul calls us to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace why because there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is over all and through all and in all and because of all those ones therefore the churches be marked by unity and one mindedness as we live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together we may with one voice glorify the god and father of our lord Jesus Christ so the first thing that marks us is a one mindedness second thing that marks the church as a beautiful community is that it's marked by sympathy. Sympathy is a powerful, powerful thing. The word literally means to feel with someone. One writer said, It's the ability to enter another person's emotional house and make your way to the living room and sit with them for a while in their joys or sorrows. I love that picture. His ability to enter someone else's emotional house, go to the living room, and sit with them in their joys or sorrows. Which is why Romans 12 commands us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Friends, what a beautiful and holy calling. In the church, we are not to be indifferent about how one another is feeling. We don't hear someone's pain and simply just throw it, out the, throw it out our other ear and go about our day because, well, it doesn't really concern me. That's too bad for them, but I got other things going on. And when people are sharing their pain, we don't rush to simply try to tell them how we face something similar, like, oh, yeah, I understand, because let me tell you, one time I, we don't do that. Instead, we gently listen, and we let what they're feeling actually land on us. And on the other hand, when they share good news, we don't treat it like a party that we are kind of walking past and we politely wave and say, oh, it looks like they're having a good time. No, 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 no. When they share good news, we go on into the party and we celebrate with them. We are to feel what happens to others with them as though it were happening to us. Why? Because it is. 1 Corinthians twelve twenty six says... If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Don't you want to be a part of a community like that? A community where you never have to suffer alone, and a community where you always have someone to celebrate with. And sometimes, Similar to how Phil prayed, I love that prayer brother, it ties in right perfectly with this. Sometimes we do those at the same time, don't we? You may go straight from a funeral to a wedding or a hospital room to a birthday party. After the service, even today, you may talk to one member about losing their job and turn around in your next conversation find out someone's pregnant. We don't keep these things at arm's length, just kind of finding out just the bare facts, but not feeling them. We put our whole hearts into it, and we feel with each other. After all, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us. Instead, Jesus has walked in our shoes. He's faced what we've faced, yet without sin. So, because we have a sympathetic high priest, as his church, we are to be marked by sympathy. Third, we are to be marked by a family or brotherly love for one another. That word there, brotherly love, this was a term used back then only for blood relatives. This wasn't, you don't use that term to describe your friends. You didn't use it to describe your team or your club or your coworkers. It's not it's not a word tossed about lightly in just any group that you feel a little bit of fondness for. This word was reserved for family. And so when Peter uses that word here, he's reminding us that's exactly what the local church is. We've been born again into a new family with God as our father and Jesus as our great older brother. We really are a family. So here he says, love each other that way. Now here's the thing about families. This may come as a shock to some of you, but you don't get to choose who's in them. Some of you are like, amen. Okay, don't, that's probably not the right thing to do. But God brings us into this beautiful, messy, wonderful, quirky, and sometimes frustrating collection of people and then says, love each other. And families, sometimes we get hurt. Sometimes we get offended. Sometimes we just flat out get annoyed. Sometimes families don't do things the way we think they should do them. Or they don't do things we like. And what do we do then in families? Do we just complain? Give up? Walk away? Go down the street? Find a new family? No. We press in. And we seek to work things out. We keep showing up to family get-togethers. We still have each other's back. And we still would do anything to help each other out. Why? Because that's what you do for family. So Chapelwood. I want you to take a second I want you to look around the room if you're a member here this is your family what a glorious thing my question for all of us this morning is does your life reflect that reality? if an outsider were to listen to you talk were to watch how you spend your time were to observe what your priorities are Would they draw the conclusion those people are their family? If you're here, Christian, and you're lonely and you're not a part of a local church, do you know that God has given you a family? This beautiful community called the church is filled with brothers. And sisters and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews just waiting to love you and be loved by you. Will you come be a part of a family? We all long for the security of family love. We love it. If you have it, you cherish it. If you don't have it, you wish you did. It's a love where no matter how bad you blow it, someone will still be there for you at the end of the day. It's a love where you don't need to impress anyone or pretend to be someone you're not. It's a love that you know they will always do what's best for you even when it may not be what you want them to do. It's a love that's there to help whatever your need might be and no matter how much it costs. In other words, it's a love like the one we receive in the gospel. The love we receive from Jesus who Hebrews says, is not ashamed to call us his brothers. This is the kind of brotherly love that is to mark the local church because we are a family. Fourth, Peter calls us to be tender-hearted or in other words, compassionate. Now the opposite of tender-hearted would be what? If something's are ten- not tender, it's hard, hard-hearted. And Peter's saying rather than being unmoved by other people's pain, we are to be the kind of people who move toward pain. One writer explained this so helpfully to me. He said that when the tenderhearted meet the pain of suffering, they extend mercy. And we see this in Jesus time and time again, right? When he encounters those who were harassed like sheep without a shepherd, or the hungry, or the sick, or the grieving, or the demon-possessed. Over and over in each of those situations, it tells us he had compassion on them. He was tender-hearted toward them in the pain of suffering. And on the other hand, when the tender-hearted meet the pain of sin, they extend forgiveness. Being all too aware of our own sins and failures, Ephesians 4.32 reminds us that we are to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, same word, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is tender-hearted toward you and me. And he didn't merely feel our pain with us in sympathy, but he had compassion on us and moved toward us in our pain. He took our sins and bore them in his body on the tree so that we wouldn't have to bear it anymore. He relieved the pain of our sin by taking it upon himself and suffering in our place so that we could be freed from the burdens of guilt and shame that we carry. Now as those who have received such tender-hearted compassion, we are called to reflect that same tender-hearted compassion to one another. With tender hearts, we are to be quick to forgive one another and quick to feel compassion for each other. Friends, the reality is the people all around you this morning, they are carrying more and heavier burdens than you can imagine. They are carrying pain and sin and sorrow and struggle and shame. And we are meant to be a community that does not keep a safe distance from one another's pain. Instead, in compassion, we move toward the hurting and we help bear one another's burdens. Like our Savior, we are to be a people who are gentle and a place where bruised reeds aren't broken, but restored. The local church is to be a beautiful community in our tender-hearted compassion. Fifth, we are to be humble-minded, humble-minded. Now, some of these characteristics, people of the day would have read them, non-Christians, and said, yeah, I can agree with that. This one, not a chance. This was a despised characteristic back in Peter's time. Humility was not a prized virtue. Slaves, they were humble. You want to talk about humble? Let's talk about slaves. Not respectable people. No, no. But Peter says here, when people encounter our community, part of what they should notice is our humility. We should be marked by a willingness to go low to lift others up. We're not out to always have things be our way. Instead, we follow Paul's command in Philippians 2 to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And again, why do we live that way? Because it's the way Jesus showed us. He came not to be served, but to serve. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, And why did he go so low to lift you and I up? So that we imitate him and going low to lift one another up. We want to be a humble-minded community because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And man, do we want grace. Verse 9 then shows us a sixth mark of the beautiful community. The church, it says, is to be a place where we don't look for payback. Instead, we bless those who curse us. Verse 9 says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. The way it works in the world typically is that if you insult me, I'm going to insult you back. And if you do me wrong, I'll do you worse. And then when I do that, you're going to take it up another notch and then i'm going to take it up another notch and it's on and on it goes this vicious cycle of escalating conflict you see it everywhere from the playground to international politics this is how the world works but here's the thing jesus broke the cycle when he was reviled he did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten Instead, what did Jesus say about those enemies who mocked him and taunted him and spit on him and crucified? What did he say about them on the cross? Father, forgive them. Jesus died for us when we were his enemies so that in him we could have every spiritual blessing. He blessed us instead of returning curse for curse. And now, Peter says, his church is meant to look like him. We don't respond to evil with evil. Instead, we seek to bless. Jesus told us in Matthew 5, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor, yes, and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Paul tells the church at Thessalonica, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Listen to this, but always seek to do good to one another and everyone we don't seek to get even we are to genuinely seek to do good to those who insult us and wrong us and i say genuinely because the blessing is not a mere perfunctory outer thing where you say all right i won't hit them i won't let the words come out of my mouth but man i'm thinking it he says no 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 blessing comes out of the heart You you can't pray for someone out of a loving heart when you're still holding on to the anger and the bitterness. As Paul told the church in Rome, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. That word honorable, guess what word that is? That's our word beautiful. The church is to do what is beautiful in the sight of everyone by not repaying evil by blessing those who curse us okay now we come to a shift in our passage we come to some motivations Peter wants to give us some reasons why should the church live this way he gives us two reasons in verse 9 and a third in verse 10 first he says we should live the way that we just heard about in verses 8 and 9 for to this you were called in other words when God called us out of darkness And into his marvelous light, he called us to live a certain kind of life. It wasn't just a get out of jail free card. Okay, now you're out. Go about your business and do what you will. He says, no, no, I've got a particular kind of life I've saved you for. And part of that life is being one-minded, is being sympathetic, loving like family, being tender-hearted, humble-minded, and blessing those who curse us. That's what we've been called to. Just like up in chapter 2, verse 20, we saw something similar, right? There, Peter said, When you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called. What's the point? The point is that Peter is saying, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what you signed up for. These are not merely helpful suggestions, this is what it looks like on the ground to follow Jesus this is how we are called to live. That's one motivation. This is how you're called. But Peter doesn't stop there. He also gives us a second motivation. He tells us what's the purpose of God calling us to live that way. Look at verse 9 again. That you may obtain a blessing. Now, that's what the ESV says, but there's something we missed with that translation here. If you have any other translation, I think almost any other one says that you may inherit a blessing, and that's the right word. It's inherit, and that's really important for a couple reasons. First, because it helps us know what this blessing is. It's not just some blessing, like it'll rain money on you, or your dog won't be sick anymore. It's not just any blessing you can fill in the blank with. There's a particular blessing he has in mind, but we know what blessing we'll inherit, right? We've already been told about this inheritance back in chapter 1. How it's imperishable, how it's undefiled, unfading, it's kept in heaven for us. Our inheritance we saw is this glorious salvation that's waiting to be revealed when Jesus returns. And now Peter says, live like this so that you'll inherit the blessing. That should make you say, whoa, wait a minute. Is he talking about works righteousness? Is he saying that we need to to earn like we need to live this way to earn this blessing that you won't get this unless you live that way? And there's some achievement involved here. Absolutely not. But this is why the inheritance word is so important. First of all, we know he's not saying you have to earn this because no one earns an inheritance, right? Right. If you get an inheritance, it's not based on how good you are. It's not based on how successful you were in life. An inheritance is based solely on your relationship to the one giving the inheritance. That's what makes you an heir. Okay, so how did we become heirs of this salvation? This is chapter 1, verse 3. Because according to God's great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a new inheritance. He has made us heirs in Christ by giving us new life as his children. And with this new life comes a new nature that lives differently because we are his children. What does that new life look like? It looks like verses 8 and 9. And when we live that way, he's not saying it earns us the inheritance. Instead, what it does is it proves that we are, in fact, God's children and thus rightful heirs. You've got to get this. This makes sense. He's not saying that anyone can walk off the street, show up the day the will's read, and say, no, no, I'm an heir because look at, my, look at my sheet of what I've accomplished. I did this. He says, no, 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 no. When someone shows up and says, I'm a child of God, they're going to look at it and say like, oh, yeah, I can tell by your life you are, in fact. Those things didn't make you a child of God. They just prove that you've already been made a child of God. So why should we live as the beautiful community we see here? Because we're called to it? And because it's the way we inherit our blessing. Now, we're not going to spend as much time in verses 10 to 12. But I want you to see that Peter is doing the same thing you and I are doing this morning. He's getting his way of thinking from his Bible. So to support everything he just said. He just made a lot of assertions. And to support it, he's going to look back at Psalm 34. He says, I want you to see part of where I'm getting this idea from. Notice that 4 at the beginning of verse 10. But first, Peter starts with our third motivation. And this is where that question we asked at the beginning comes in. Do you want to love life and see good days? Implied is, if so, then live like this. So do you see the motivation he's laying out? He says, we should live the way that I'm about to call you to live so that we can love life and so that we can see good days. So now, his readers, hopefully, they would have been sitting forward a little bit like, I want to I love life. I want to see good days. So they're, they're leaning forward like, shh, shh, shh. Hey, wait, what's to tell us? How, how, how do we love life? How do we see good days? He gives us three marks. He says, you want to you love life? You want to see good days? First, watch your words. Watch your words. Look at verse 10. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So in order to see good, Peter says, we should live lives marked by careful speech that is free from evil and lies. That means this evil, I think, encompasses a lot of things. It means we should keep our tongues from gossip. We should keep our tongues from slander, from lying, from boasting about our own greatness, from malicious words, from saying things that corrupt and tear others down. Instead, we are to say only that which is good for building up. That which gives grace to those who hear it. As Christians, we are called to speak what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. So if Peter's first admonition from Psalm 34 is watch your words. Watch your words. Second, if you want to love life and see good days, turn from evil and do good. In other words, live a life of ongoing repentance. Repentance. Repentance, we always talk about a change in direction, right? Do you see the change in direction in the text? Peter's saying, look, if evil's that way over there, turn away from it. Don't just not do bad things. Actively move away from evil. Go the other direction. Don't kind of linger as close as you can thinking nothing's going to happen by being around evil. He says, no, 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 no. Get away from it as far as possible. And don't just avoid doing bad things. I love this. He doesn't just say, turn away from evil, period. Don't just avoid doing bad things. Actively do good. Isn't this what Peter's been pounding into us throughout this section? Do good, do good, do good. Peter wants us to see that the beauty of the church is not mainly seen in what we don't do, but in what we do too many people define christianity they say well i'm a christian because i don't fill in the blank because i don't drink because i don't sleep around because i don't watch that because i don't do this there's all these behaviors that we say like that's what makes them a christian the bible says no 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 that's that's not it you're to be known by what you do By the good you do. Titus 2 says Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Do you hear it? In other words, he redeemed us to make us into a people who are chomping at the bit to do good. That we wake up in the morning saying, I wonder what good I can do today. Our prayer every day is, God, help me to walk in the good works you've prepared beforehand for me to walk in. We just we love to do good. As Galatians 6:10 says, "So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, especially to the beautiful community." That's the second thing. The third thing we're called to do, if we want to see the good life, is pursue peace." Look at verse 11. It says, let him seek peace and pursue it. What I want you to notice in that verse is peace doesn't just happen. It must be sought and pursued. Now in the church, we don't need to create peace. Jesus already did that. But we must be eager to maintain it, to seek it, to pursue it. So how do you do that? How do you seek and pursue peace? By seeking unity and humility, by being sympathetic and tenderhearted, by loving each other like a family, by not letting conflicts fester, by being slow to take offense, quick to forgive, and always ready for reconciliation. Peace in the church, friends, doesn't happen simply by keeping your distance and trying not to say anything bad. It's not, peace is not the absence of a negative. Peace comes by actually getting close to others and doing good. So if, you've, if that's been your thing, I'm just not gonna rock the boat. I, I can preserve peace by just simply not saying or doing anything. In fact, the less involved I am, the less likely I am to disrupt the peace, so I'm gonna keep, no, Peter says, that's not how peace is pursued. You gotta get in there and you pursue others and do good to them. Finally then, and I mean finally, Peter ends his quotation of Psalm 34 with two final motivations, a promise and a warning. Let's look at them in the reverse order though. First, the warning. He says, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's a sobering warning. There's a lot of people in life that you probably don't want as your enemies. Anytime you see somebody who's stronger than you, has more connections, more influential, you know that if if we go head to head, I don't think I'm gonna come out on top. At the top of that list is the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And here Peter says, the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you do evil, you have put yourself on one side of the line with God's firmly on the other. And you say, all right, let's see what you got. And friend, you do not want to see what he's got. It will not go well with you. And Peter's warning us soberly saying, do not bite off more than you can chew. But then he balances it. He doesn't just warn us. He gives us this, this beautiful promise. Do you hear this? He says, on the other hand, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. In other words, as you strive to live this good life in his beautiful community, Peter wants you to know God's good presence is with you. He sees you. Friends, he hears you. God Almighty looks down and he knows exactly what you're facing today. That burden that maybe no one else in this room knows, God sees you. His eyes are on the righteous. And when you, when you cry yourself to sleep because you're not sure what to do, or when you just kind of mumble in a fog because you're not sure where to go from here and no one else is around and you don't think anyone understands, he hears you. You are not alone. And he will give you the help you need to keep trusting him and keep following him. And one of the main ways that he does that is through his body, through the beautiful community of the church. Now, I want to give you a heads up that next week we're going to kind of, in one sense, hit pause on 1 Peter because we want to explore this a little bit more. Back in March at our member meeting, if you were there, you remember we talked about how we were going to reintroduce a church covenant. Historically, we had one in days gone by, but it's fallen out of disuse and it's time. We want to say like, that's an important document for our church and it has everything to do with what we just talked about today. This is not something off in left field. It's intimately linked to what Peter just told us the beautiful community should be. So next week, I I encourage you and I invite you to come back and hear about this important step in our church making our membership more meaningful. The questions we're gonna answer are, what can we do to help create and preserve this kind of beautiful community? What tool is at our disposal to help hold a community like this together? So come on back. We're gonna explore church covenants next week. In conclusion, let me say this. Friend, do you want to live the good life? Together then, let's live by God's ways with God's people in God's presence. Let's see good days by living beautiful lives together in the beautiful community of his church. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you love your people. What a precious reality the church is that so much so that you would give it to your son as his bride. Of all the things you could have given to your son, you created a people and you said, that is where I want my son to show his love, to set his love upon these flawed and sinful people and to redeem them. To redeem them from all their lawlessness and to make them zealous for good works. God, thank you that you have called us into this beautiful community called the church. Father, we long to to be this kind of church. Thank you for the ways that I see this at work already. But God, we pray, do it all the more. Lord, help us to keep in step with your spirit and to walk in what we see here in 1 Peter. God, I pray even this week that you would help us to make strides in living the beautiful life together as part of a beautiful community. Would you do this for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.